Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello, everyone. I'm Bashan Farad. Let's build. <laughs> Last night, um, very late last night for you in Washington, D.C., yeah. in Ferguson, two police officers were shot. And thank goodness they're, Thankfully uh, they're, okay. they're at home now and they're yeah. out of the hospital. And especially, you gave a beautiful speech in Selma right. last Saturday about, talking about these very subjects, about right. civil rights, the past, the present, the right. future of civil rights. Is, does that make it especially painful for you when something like this happens? Obviously, we don't yet know what happened. Uh, our thoughts and prayers are with the, the officers and their families, and, and thankfully, as you said, they're going to be okay. Um, what was beautiful about Selma was reminding ourselves that real social change in this country uh, so often has happened because ordinary people are willing in a nonviolent fashion to make their voices heard. And you know, I think that what had been happening in Ferguson uh, was oppressive and objectionable and was worthy of protest. But there was no excuse for criminal acts. And, and whoever fired those shots uh, shouldn't detract from the issue. They're criminals. They need to be arrested. And then what we need to do is to make sure that like-minded, good-spirited people on both sides, law enforcement, who have a tr terrifically tough job, and people who understandably don't want to be stopped and harassed just because of their race, that we're able to work together to try to come up with uh, some, some good answers. And I think I put together a task force after the original Ferguson event had taken place that had police officers, police chiefs, and some of the organizers of protests both in Ferguson and in New York, young people. And they came up with some terrific recommendations and found that there's a lot of common ground. And what we have to make sure of is, is that... Uh, the folks who disregard and disrespect uh, the other side, people who resort to violence, that they're marginalized and they set us all back. They do, yeah, they do. And and but but they're not the majority. And and in the same way that you can't generalize uh, about police officers who do uh, an extraordinarily tough job, overwhelmingly they do it professionally. You can't generalize about protesters who it turns out had some very legitimate grievances. The Justice Department report showed that they were being stopped. Uh, African-Americans were being stopped disproportionately, mainly so the city could raise money, uh, even though uh, these were unjust. And uh, I can't imagine how frustrating that must be. I mean, I get crazy, and I'm not joking about part when I get like like parking tickets right. that I feel, feel are unjust. And to be put in a situation like that, I, mean, I do, really. Like, <laughs> my wheels are not turned properly, and I feel like they're just trying to make money off of me. It's, they're not obeying the spirit of the law. Well, and, and what was happening in Ferguson was uh, you had uh, city government telling the police department and that stop more people. We need to raise more money. Folks would get stopped. They'd get tickets. Then they'd have to wait in line to pay it, take a day off work. Folks would lose their jobs. In some cases, they were thrown in jail because they didn't have enough money for the fines. Uh, and then they'd get fined for that. Uh, and, you know, so there was a whole structure there, according to the Justice Department report, that uh, indicated both racism and uh, just a disregard for what law enforcement's supposed to do. And, and as I said before, uh, I said this at Selma, uh, it is not unique, but it's also not the norm. And we've got to, we've got to constantly, when we're thinking about issues of racial progress or any kind of issue, recognize that things get better, 
but there's still more work to do. And we shouldn't be complacent about uh, the very real existence of problems out there, but we shouldn't despair and think nothing's changed. Uh, if, 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 if people of goodwill, which is the overwhelming majority of Americans, are working together, uh, these are problems we can solve. The President of the United States is here. We'll be right back. Hello, everyone. I'm Dashan Farad. Welcome to Let's Build. We just heard a clip of President Barack Obama on an episode of Jimmy Kimmel last week discussing the crisis in Ferguson, as well as the Department of Justice a report that came out on March 4th, which, although it had absolved uh, Darren Wilson, although Darren Wilson had been absolved in the killing of Mike Brown, of uh, uh, violating Mr. Brown's uh, civil rights, the Department of Justice, the report did say that uh, the department is guilty. Ferguson Police Department is actually guilty of racial profiling. Now, we're very sorry for that background noise. I don't know where that's coming from, uh, uh, but we're very sorry. Please apologize if you bear with us. Uh, anyway, tonight we have with us two special guests on this first segment. Uh, we have with us uh, an activist sister who was on the ground as we speak uh, right now in Ferguson from out of St. Louis, Missouri, but she's been in Ferguson the whole time since it jumped off in August. I want to join, I want to welcome to Let's Build Miss Asia Polk, who is also a member of the New Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. And joining her as well is the founder of the Black Cops Against Police Brutality and former police sergeant out of New Jersey, Delacy Davis. Welcome to the show to both of you. Peace, brother. Thank you. Peace to the family. Thank you very much. I'm sorry. Is Deja still online? Deja, are you there? I oh. am, but I don't know if you can hear me. Oh, yes, I can hear you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Well, first of all, I want to start with you, uh, Deja. First of all, tell us what's going on there in Ferguson uh, since the DOJ report had came out. We understand, of course, that last week, Wednesday, when uh, Police Chief Thomas Jackson had resigned, once the uh, report had... Once it was proven that uh, several, once it was proven that the department was actually guilty of racial profiling, we understand that he, along with several officials, had resigned, including the city manager. And uh, also on that same night, two officers were shot. We want to know what's been yes. taking place there in Ferguson since last Wednesday. Please give us a snapshot of that. Oh well, um, there was a um, there was a demonstration done at uh, at James Knowles' house. After he was resigned, of course, as the mayor of Ferguson, and um, and he he's refusing to resign. Um, there there are definitely some uh, some major major issues that aren't being confronted here since the DOJ report has been I mean, of course, you know, in the report there were some major, well, not necessarily even major findings, but it just sheds some light on what's really uh, the the scheme of things. When you look at Ferguson, you look at how the municipalities are structured, you look at how the court systems are structured and how they're feeding off of the communities. Um, this is nothing that's new to us, of course, just being uh, residents of the city of St. Louis. But at the same time, um, we're, st we're still not getting the answers that we are looking for. Uh, the change that we're looking to see is not happening. And... And the situation with the two officers who were shot, um, speculations out on that one. Um, lots of people have expressed confusion and suspicion, um, but it's, uh, it, it's really up in the air. And, and as far as the 20 year old who has come forward to admitting to firing the shot, that's also something that's, uh, sketchy as well. So we, it's, it, it's definitely not, not, not as clear. <laughs> here on our end, as we'd like it to be, but we're just taking it a day at a time. Okay, well, this is what I wanted to ask. Now, of course, uh, for, for members of our audience who may not be aware of this, uh, two days after the Department of uh, Justice report came out on March 4th, two days later, on March 6th, in Madison, Wisconsin, you had another young black man killed, 18-year-old Tony Terrell Robinson was killed by police. Uh, many are claiming that he was an officer. The police in that area are claiming that he attacked the officer. I want to ask, uh, I want to ask, uh, Delacy Davis this question. Now, uh, now Delacy, 
several years ago, you had started Black Cops Against Police. Uh, I'm sorry, we seem to be having feedback in the audience and wonder if you can kindly, uh, you know, get to a better uh, phone system. I'm very sorry, but anyway, uh, Galatia, you had started the Black Cops Against Police Brutality several years ago to counter police brutality. I want to ask you a question briefly, if you could. Why do you think that police, that police violence or the police shootings of black men still keeps taking place after all of these decades? What is your assessment on this and also on the DOJ's report, Department of Justice? Okay, you're a little muffled, just so you know, Deshaun, so I'm not hearing you very well. But I believe I, that you asked, well, is, do I think there's violence around the police violence in our community, right? Yes, yes sir. That's exactly that's what I was asking. Yes, sir. So, I mean, I, I don't believe it's overly, overly difficult to conclude that black lives don't matter. You know that we have maintained over the last 20 years that the organizational culture of law enforcement is white male dominated, racist, sexist, homophobic, and then we get to some good cops. Um, it is a system that works. Um, white supremacy works, racism works, and so I believe that it's functioning as it was structured. So if we don't dismantle the system, you know, there are those of us across the country who do this work, who have been in law enforcement who believe that it cannot be reformed, it has to be dismantled and restructured. Um, institutionalized racism requires an institutionalized response, and very frequently our responses have not been institutionalized. And what I mean by that certainly it requires the community's engagement as we have, and certainly we're proud of brothers and sisters on the ground in Ferguson for the work, because if they had not done the work that they've done in the community, then the world still would say that they're imagining the experience that they're having. Um, what some of us um, who have been in law enforcement are saying is that the narrative has to change, that our white counterparts have maintained that people do not understand what it is to be a police officer, and therefore they don't understand what they see, just as they said to Rodney King, don't believe your lying eyes, even though it was on video. And so we're arguing and, and pushing and saying that officers of color particularly, especially those of us who continue to live in black communities, must argue the other side, which is validating the lived experiences of the people in Ferguson, St. Louis, Newark, and all around the country who've had this experience all of our lives with law enforcement. Law enforcement, we understand why our white counterparts have maintained the company line, but we do not accept nor what we tolerate black and Latino and Asian officers who are maintaining a company line against the best interests of our community and our people. Oh, I'm sorry, Deja, did you care to add to that? Because the uh, new Black Panther Party, as I understand it, for several years has also been involved in an anti-police brutality uh, campaign. Did you care to add to that? I mean, though, I've, I've always been a strong advocate uh, of us police in our own, our own neighborhoods, uh, kind of having a neighborhood watching some wheels. Um, that's, that's just to keep the, the response level, because honestly, people are nowadays a lot more uh, wary, a lot more afraid of actually calling 911 for fear that it will escalate into something much worse than, than what they what they really need. Um, and it's honest, and it's just like, okay, so if I am calling the police, what am I, what am I, what am I doing myself up for? If I have a situation, let's say it's domestic violence, uh, is the officer going to be dispatched to the scene to talk to anybody, or is the officer going to show up? Is he going to, uh, start arresting people? Is there going to be some sort of physical altercation? Are we now going to be facing some kind of charges, uh, because, of, because of it? And so, um, it's always in my mind the best option to, to take care of our own, to handle our own, uh, ourselves and totally, uh, in a sense, separate ourselves from uh, those exact same, uh, police factions. Cause we, it's, it's no trust. There's no trust there. Um, and no matter what color, what, what color you are underneath your blue or your brown shirt, um, it, you're still a police officer and you still have, uh, a cold, that you think so you still have uh, obligations as officers towards officers. So uh, those tacks, in my mind, are a lot stronger than what it would be towards a civilian if, if they're being um, dispatched to an area where I am. And I'm just an uh, innocent bystander, but I just happen to be there, and I'm a black woman, and I'm watching. Uh, next thing I know, I'm being locked up for obstruction justice, even though all I was doing was watching what was going on. It, you just, you never know when you're violating a law. You never know when an officer is going to decide that for some reason you need to be, uh, detained or questioned 
uh, it's, it's, it's a lot scarier um, than a lot of people from the outside looking in uh, see. And it, <laughs> it's well on okay, its way, honestly. It's well on its way. Well, this is what I, okay, well, this is what I have to ask. Okay, I wanted to ask Delacy this. Now, Delacy, you uh, establishing an, orphan, an organization. I hope you can hear me. Can you hear me, Delacy, clearly? I, I hear you. You said a little muffled. You muffled okay, it's, like it's the mic that you're talking into, Brother Dashaun. Okay, very sorry. I don't know what that's about, but we'll have it straightened out soon. But this is what I had to ask you. Hopefully you can hear me a lot better now. What I wanted to know yeah. was, uh, Delacy, you, you starting an organization uh, consisting primarily of African-American police officers. I remember uh, when I was a teenager, when you had first began speaking out against, the, against police brutality in your department in East Orange, New Jersey, a predominantly black city, you had reported that you had received officers' uh, threats from from fellow black officers. How would you address, and when we come back from this commercial break, I want you to address black officers who are practicing racial profiling against other black men. When we come back right after this, you're listening to Let's Build. are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Welcome back to Let's Build. I'm Dashaun Farad. We're speaking with activist Deja Polk, who is in Ferguson, Missouri. We're also speaking with uh, the founder of Black Cops Against Police Brutality, former New Jersey Police Sergeant DeLacy okay. Davis. And what I was asking DeLacy before we went off the air, uh, DeLacy, how would you, not before we went off the air, I should say when we went to commercial break, DeLacy, how would you respond to black officers who are practicing racial profiling themselves against black men? Well, I, let me say this. You know, and Dustin, you know, I've been very consistent over the last 20 years in my position with black officers. I've been harder with black officers than I have with white officers because it is my position that my white counterparts would never, ever do the things that they do to the black community if we didn't stand by and tacitly comply. As you know, I've testified against black officers. I've gotten convictions against black officers for assaulting black people in the black community. You know, I don't have a preference for what color the officer is in terms of the criminal. If you're committing a crime in uniform, then we should prosecute you. Whether you're an officer in Ferguson, Missouri, or you're an officer in East Orange, New Jersey, or North New Jersey, if you commit a crime against our people, we should find the courage and the testicular fortitude to prosecute you. Interestingly enough, as you know, as we've seen across the country, we've found black officers who are panthers on the street and punks in the precinct. I'm simply saying be consistent. Certainly, we know right from wrong. We've taken, and, and I want to just slightly differ with our sister, and that is that I took an oath to protect and serve the people, not the police. And so that's why 17 of my 20 years has been spent fighting the police as opposed to having any challenges with my own community. Because at the end of the day, I live in the community that I police. So I don't live in a suburb. I don't live where they don't have drugs on the corner. I live in the neighborhood that I grew up in. I police the neighborhood that I grew up in, and I still have a relationship in the community because I've been consistent with what I took an oath to do, protect and serve the people. So, uh, Deja, this is what I wanted to ask you down there now. What is the climate like in Ferguson as we speak since last Wednesday? or in the St. Louis area in general, I should say, but specifically Ferguson well, in particular? Well, though, uh, some of us have been out there uh, continuing to bring awareness to the situation. Yes, the DOJ report has come out. Uh, yes, we've had uh, some people step down, but uh, our journey is far from, from done. And uh, these, like I said, this has not settled at all. Um, and, and these are a little, the forecast is a little cloudy, but uh, people are, uh, still very much still pressuring um, the city officials, still pressuring uh, the mayor, uh, still pressuring uh, the, the police department. Um, mass demonstrations are being organized. Um, next week is going to be uh, is what most people oh, are anticipating. Oh, hold on. Deja, I'm sorry if you would. Perhaps you may need to adjust your call volume because you seem to be breaking up just a little bit. What? Now, is this better? I'm sorry, yes, your phone sounded like, I'm, I'm not sure if, if, if it's the connection, but you seem to be breaking up a little bit, like going in and out. In and out? Am I still going in and out? 
Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, I'm driving. Okay, <laughs> I'm driving no right problem. now. You're, I apologize. Actually, actually, you know what? We can actually hear you now. It's actually a lot better. It's actually a lot better. Oh, okay. okay. Finish, finish, okay. Finish, finish what you were saying. Go ahead, ma'am. Sorry about that. No, I was just saying that the uh, that the, the city is still, as far as the residents are concerned, as far as the community, um, the protesters, uh, we're still looking for answers. We're still looking for change. Um, so everybody's still hitting the streets, uh, still putting pressure on the police department. Um, there are still groups that gather there every day. Uh, also, there have been a lot of uh, groups coming together in solidarity and for strategies and plans. As far as what this summer is going to look like, um, we have a huge demonstration coming up next weekend, uh, which, uh, which is a national, it's a national demonstration. So we have a lot of people still, um, still coming to St. Louis just to, just to participate, to continue to show solidarity with us, um, as far as that goes. But it's a lot of uh, questions that still have been, uh, unanswered. And there are a lot of things that we're still calling for, demands that we have put out that still have not been, uh, have not been settled, and uh, the person going to continue to stay on until we really, really keep you changed, because things aren't going to get better until unless we continue to fight for things to become better. Okay, this is what I wanted to ask uh, the both of you. Why do you think that, uh, for, some, for example, whenever we listen to many Fox News hosts or many conservatives, but specifically Fox News hosts such as Sean Hannity, and Bill O'Reilly, they always seem to wish to blame black men for why they're being shot. They wish to blame the black community. And we always hear things such as, uh, in the case of Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown, oh, well, uh, the reason that they were killed is because the majority of black babies are born out of wetlock. Why do you think people are always mentioning, the, uh, mentioning many, of the, uh, many of the afflictions or the negative aspects of the black community whenever trying to give a counter-argument to black men being shot down by police officers. What do you think that's about? I don't if you can jump in any time. Well, I think it's just a distraction, to be candid. The fact of the matter is, when we talk about black males being shot by the police, we should deal with the facts. We're not talking about whether or not they were born out of wedlock, who their parent is, who their father is, whether they have an education, whether they have a prior criminal history. We're talking about that moment in time. What was the relationship between the officer and that black male, and did he have a right to use deadly force? That's it. It's just as I heard the sister talking about they want change, that people are being allowed to step down. At the end of the day, if you were a criminal and you robbed the bank, you're not allowed to step down and give the money back. You have to be held accountable and prosecuted for criminal behavior. And so as I've been reading through the investigation of the Justice Department, the Ferguson Police Department, Allowing people to step down simply allows them to go to another community and terrorize and take the same practices with That's them. Right. If it's been determined that they've committed a crime, they should be treated like any other criminal. They should be charged and prosecuted accordingly. Do all well, of you I feel? Want... Go ahead, go ahead, Deja. Go ahead. I I just gonna uh, piggyback off that and and mention. Now we we've, we've heard a lot of different terms uh, thrown around during all this time, and one one of the major terms is a white privilege that has been thrown around. And uh, I don't think people really have a clear understanding of what white white privilege is and and how it works exactly. And so when we're allowing um when we're allowing these uh, television anchors to uh, control the platform and and be able to control the dialogue, it doesn't matter what you get on there and say or or what they're actually talking about if it doesn't push their agenda. They're not going to make it on it. They're not going to say anything about it that's going to give more clarity to the situation. And, and people, quite frankly, are extremely prejudiced, extremely bigoted. And when you think about um, a headline that includes a black man being killed by whether it be a black or a white or an Asian Latino officer, um, there's always going to be speculation as to what kind of lifestyle that that black man lived or, or what exactly prompted that black man to be doing anything that might have him in the in the pathway of an officer uh, in a situation that might cause him to, to become uh, no longer with a living. So it's, it's unfortunate that we live in a society that's structured so uh, blindly, um, but at the same time, these are some of the, the very, very major issues that we were fighting against. Okay, definitely. What I wanted to ask, then, I wanted to ask either of you, do you feel that President Obama and Attorney General Eric Holder are handling this situation good? 
or properly, or properly. I'll the one that you can jump in at any time. Well, let, let me just say the, the, the Justice Department amazingly has condemned, for all intents and purposes, the law enforcement um, re- relationship between the court, the clerk, the judge, the, the court clerk, um, as well as the police chief. And no one's been indicted for anything. There we go. There we go. No one's been held accountable for anything. And everyone's been allowed to just simply wash their hands of this community that they should not have control over to begin with and move on and start a new life somewhere. So in that regard, you can't have it both ways. We cannot condemn all of the behavior of the people in charge and not hold the people in charge accountable for the behavior that we're condemning. Absolutely. Absolutely. Took the words right out of my mouth. Uh, Although, you know, I, I understand their situations are definitely um, a, a lot more sensitive in a sense. And, I mean, I, I personally uh, am, am proud of anybody that that is able to, to be a part of something like this and, and still have the calmness and the, the a cool head approaching the situation. But just the simple fact that you have the, the full point that I'm talking about, the disparity between um, the, the amount of blacks that get uh, pulled over, the amount of, of fines, how, how the whole entire municipality is structured as far as how it's sucking off of the community and, and nobody is being held accountable and even, you know, and, and to, well, say, and to try to say that the shooting wasn't racially motivated, even though you me. This is what I want to ask both of you in the final minutes of this segment. Now that, now that, you know, many activists are maintaining, of course, that the justice system in America and police departments in America are racially biased towards black and brown people, what sort of infrastructures, I should say, what next? With all these protests that are taking place, what next? What is the next step after this? So I, well, I think it's, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> I think locally, residents who, who are being impacted directly have to determine what's next for them. Locally, I think on a national stage, from our point of view, there has to be litigation against police departments and police officers personally who use these practices as a form of policing. That's number one. We have to monitor police departments. We're told that there's 89 other communities there in the state who are functioning similarly or worse. And so that yeah. has to be addressed. Additionally, we have to talk about hearings on Capitol Hill, litigation on Capitol Hill. Additionally, if, if in fact there's discriminatory practices as this report dictates, then you have to withhold federal dollars that says you cannot discriminate and accept federal public dollars as well. You want to add to that, Deja? Definitely. And um, it, it, on, on a personal on a personal front. Um, the, the Black Lives Matter test uh, definitely has to, there has to be a, although that's something that we say, it, it needs to now be something that we do. And uh, there needs to be a lot of introspection as far as how we are dealing with one another within our own community. How many, how many people have been killed since Michael Brown? And, and were they all police-related or were they in a, in a community issue? And, um, it's, it's been it's been past time for an examination into how some of these okay. uh, areas okay. operate and okay. how we can okay. support them. Mr. Deja, I'm very sorry. I'm going to have to stop stop you right here. We'd like to wait, we'd like to thank Deja Polk and Delacy Davis for joining us. Please stay tuned for our next segment as we discuss Iran, Hillary Clinton, 2016. Please stay with us. I'm Dr. You're listening to Let's Do. Brother Elliot, first of time for an awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium. Yes, 
Hello, everyone. I'm Dashaun Farad. Welcome to Let's Build. Welcome back, I should say. Welcome to our second segment. Tonight, in this segment, we're going to be discussing the, uh, our, excuse me, Iran. We're asking the question, is Iran really a threat? We're asking, uh, should we at all be concerned about Iran? We'd like to hear from you tonight. Uh, we're also going to be discussing Hillary Clinton's emails, uh, will they destroy her in 2016? Will they damage her in 2016? Uh, tonight we have joining us, we, tonight we have joining us, uh, we're waiting for them to join us, of uh, Democratic strategist Roy Paul and Republican strategist Marjorie Romaine Senebria. If I'm pronouncing her name, her name right, please talk to me if I mispronounced it. And we're asking the question, I'm asking the question rather, why are, why is the GOP just itching for a war with Iran. Now, keep in mind, I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. I'm not here to beat up on the Republicans. I'm not here as a liberal. I'm not here as a conservative. But we would just like to ask that question. The reason we're posing that question, for those of you unaware, last week, 47 Republican senators, led by junior senator from Arkansas, Tim Cotton, sent a letter to some of the big shots in Iran, telling them basically not to trust the deal that President Barack Obama was attempting to negotiate with them. The main concern with Iran is most of the world superpowers fear them uh, obtaining or creating a nuclear bomb. They're afraid of them getting nuclear capability. Many people feel that the Republicans have uh, crossed their boundaries uh, once again with this president. Several weeks ago, Benjamin Netanyahu had addressed a joint session of Congress. He was invited by to Congress, Benjamin Netanyahu had emphasized what he felt was the threat that Iran is posing to his country, Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu is the Prime Minister of Israel, for those of you who don't know. Recently, there was a petition. 235,000 Americans have sent a petition to the White House uh, demanding that the President condemn these various Republicans for doing that. Some have even said that Republicans should be charged with treason for going against going against the uh, president's uh, handling of we're going against the president's handling of the situation in Iran. So we're asking the question tonight, is the GOP itching for a war with Iran? Tonight we have with us once again, we have Democratic strategist Roy Paul, and we have Republican strategist uh, Marjorie Sanabria. Welcome both of you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, first of all, uh, Marjorie, uh, excuse me, I want to ask you a question. I'm very sorry yes. for mispronouncing. How do we pronounce your last name? I'm very sorry. Oh, no problem. It's Ramayan Sanabria. Okay, thank you very much. Do you mind if I call you Miss Sanabria so I won't mess up? Not at all. Okay, thank you very much. Roy Paul, how are you doing? I can hear me. Yes, I can hear you just well. Okay, I'm well, good. first, I'm going to start with you, Marjorie. You have to please excuse me. I'm not at all trying to get at you, but I must ask the question that a lot of Americans are asking Republicans. Yes, why sir. is your party? Why is your party just? Uh, I'm sorry, whoever that is in the background, you're dialing, you're dialing numbers. We can hear you. Whoever that is in the background, you're on the line. As I was saying, Marjorie, why is your party just itching for a war with Iran? I, I really don't think that itching uh, is quite the right term. I don't think that they're itching for a war. I think political grandstanding is something that the grand old party, the GOP, is used to doing. Um, in recent memory, Ted Cruz is the architect of the shutdown in 2013. And I think that the GOP wants to send a quote-unquote strong message to shore up the conservative base in the event of 2016. Um, Tom Cotton is a freshman senator. He was just elected in November. He wants to make a name for himself. Um, and the way that you do that is by taking crap with Obama. You know, so I don't necessarily think that Americans want another war, given what's happened with Iraq and Afghanistan and Benghazi on both sides of the aisle. So I really think that this was just a, a large political stunt. Um, Iran did respond to the letter. Um, and from what we see, preliminary reports from Associated Press are saying that they're probably not going to have a large impact on negotiations. So I think we should look at this kind of political showmanship as what it is, showmanship, and kind of take it with a grain of salt. Yes, Lord Paul, how would you respond to that? By saying something I rarely say, and that's I agree with the Republican. <laughs> now, that's bad, but go ahead. Okay, <laughs> I, I, think, go ahead. 
I think that no one thinks that we're going to go to war with Iran. No one believes that the 47 senators who sent this letter is going to miraculously have any influence on negotiations. No one believes any of that. But what people do believe is that come 2016, the polls have already indicated that the Republican candidates who at this moment are perceived as some of the top nominees are going to have trouble going up against someone in Hillary Clinton. And so what you have is really a small number of white men on the Republican side who sit in a room, they lock the door, and they say to themselves, what the heck can we do to make sure that Hillary Clinton does not become president of the United States of America? And one of those three white men raised their hand because they own Let's throw every dart that we can at the wall to make sure that we embarrass President Obama because in doing so, they think that they will embarrass the Democratic Party to the point where the public will say, look at Obama, he's lost control. He can't keep any of his people in check, so we need to go and side with the Republicans. The Republicans are taking a huge risk because what might happen is that the American people might say, you know what, we don't like these stunts and the quote-unquote political showmanship that the Republicans just talked about. And we're going to say, you know what, we don't want to deal with that. We want to deal with people who are, who are sane and who act rational. And that's certainly not the Republicans in this particular debate. Okay, so I want to ask you this, Roy. Do you believe that these 47 senators at all committed a treasonous act? No, I don't, I don't think they've done that. I, I think they are acting as United States senators for all intents and purposes. I am willing to believe that they believe that they're doing the right thing. I do think they understand that it's a very political situation, but I don't think they're doing, doing anything that's outside the realm or scope of their authority as United States senators. And by virtue of them being elected, on a nationwide level, they have official authority to do whatever they want. And they can write a letter with whatever letterhead they want to put on it, and they can express their opinion. They, there's nothing illegal about doing that. And I think trying to make an argument about treason is so far-fetched from what the reality is. Okay, this is what I'm going to ask you. Now, Marjorie, according to – just to let you know, on March 11th, the New York Times editorial board had have wrote a piece condemning Republicans, and this is what it says, quote, instead of trying to be leaders and statesmen, the Republicans in Congress seem to think their role was outside the American government, divorced from constitutional principles, tradition, and the security interests of the American people. How do you feel about that? Well, I mean, I really, I really don't think that what the Republicans did was helpful. I mean, I, I don't see from a, a, a practical standpoint, from a political standpoint, how this helps in any way. I mean, we have poll data from nine months ago that says that Americans trusted Republicans more than Democrats on foreign policy issues. Um, and ever since the war in Iraq uh, ended, um, Republicans have actually been gaining ground with Americans in terms of foreign policy. I think the Republican Party is doing everything it can to restore leadership or what they, they believe leadership should be. And I don't even think they've gotten quite as far as how do we beat Hillary Clinton um, from what's going on inside the party. The question is more like who is the most viable person to run in the primary? Um, and I think that they're just, at this point, just kind of pulling things out of a hat box, kind of see what sticks. Um, I think that particularly the senators have lost a lot of touch with more of the um, the local Republicans. Um, I think our, the shift that we've seen in 2014 um, was mostly in the House of Representatives, more so than the Senate. So I think the Senate has kind of lost touch with what actual Republicans want, um, and they're doing their best to do what they think is best for their leadership or to be perceived as leaders by the base. But I think they've got a way to go in terms of their strategies, and they just shot themselves in the foot on this one. Okay, so what you're saying is that perhaps uh, this is a, yes, both of you are saying that this is perhaps a partisan move. 
If I'm hearing you correctly. It's absolutely partisan. It's absolutely partisan. Um, it's, it's completely partisan. It's, it's political. This is what Washington does. But it's not really helpful. It, it's difficult to see what, what the angle is, what the advantage is, how Republicans are going to get ahead, or how they can gain ground on this move, particularly since they have the upper ground already. Um, you know, Republicans are just beginning to um, gain trust, um, have trust restored of them by the American people. They were just getting that ground in foreign policy after losing it completely after Iraq and Afghanistan. So it's puzzling to know why they would do this. Um, and this certainly doesn't help them in terms of picking a viable candidate to run for 2016 against Hillary or whoever the Democratic nominee is. Okay, this is the so question this, that this I have. This is part and parcel of what the Republican Party is dealing with, not just on foreign policy, but essentially on every issue. The people in the room making decisions are not indicative of the larger party. They're certainly not indicative of the new people in the Republican Party. And unfortunately, yeah. people like Marjorie would never get near the door to make those kind of decisions. Well, this is what not I have yet. to ask. Okay, Marjorie was saying not yet. Okay, we probably, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to uh, two power brokers. So when you say not yet, Marjorie, I'm surprised you don't have that access. Uh, you know, we read your bio. But anyway, this is what I have to ask you. Okay, this is the thing. I've been speaking with various people across the United States, and the issue has been this. These are people who are anti the United States, uh, bothering with Iran's uh, nuclear, I should say, uranium enrichment program. Okay, one particular person told me in advance, he asked me this question. How many countries has the United States invaded? or went to war with, and how many countries has Iran went to war with? And, of course, when you see the list, you would see that the United States has actually uh, attacked more countries than Iran has, okay, and more countries than, say, Israel has. What we would like to know is I want to ask Democrats and Republicans, what is the big deal about Iran? They claim that they're not enriching their nuclear program. They're not, enrich they're not enriching their nuclear program to build a bomb. They're saying they're just doing it for other technology, you know, for electricity, et cetera, et cetera. What is the big deal about Iran having a bomb if that's, what they're, if that's what they're aspiring to? In other words, why does the United States, Israel, and France, and England get to have a bomb, or Russia get to have a bomb, but not Iran when it does not have the history of, say, the other Western countries of invading countries? What is the big deal about Iran? That's what we want to know. Well, I don't want to jump ahead. I, I think it's about the intent. I don't think anyone believes that Iran is building nuclear – first of all, they are building them, and they're not doing it for the reasons they state. They're doing it because they want to be a dominating force uh, in, in America and the world. When the United States builds weapons and, and we engage in an acts of, of war, we do that with the intent that we want to protect and defend. That's not what Iran's mission is. Iran's mission is to be a superpower and take over, similar to what China is doing. Okay, well, when you say similar to what China's doing, so then why is it that that Republicans, I should say, or many other, because, you know, of course, there's some Democrats who don't agree with this either, who don't agree with Iran either. Well, no one does, it appears. Why is it that that concern then isn't held against China? Why is it that people are not holding uh, conferences on how to deal with China's nuclear capability, in other words? There's no, there's no hint. Go ahead. Let me, let me answer your third question. Um, in terms of what the big deal is about have, of Iran having a nuclear enrichment program. Um, and really what the issue is, it's a matter of interpretation. So Iran signed a non-proliferation treaty. And Iran is, has, Iran's contention is that the, the treaty does not stipulate that Iran cannot have enrichment capability. And that is what, that is precisely what makes people nervous. Um, we have evidence, you know, United States um, intelligence services have concluded in 2011 that Iran was, in fact, not developing a nuclear um, weapons program, but the concern is that they have the capability to do so, and that is what the enrichment would allow them to do. The enrichment provides the possibility of capabilities which makes people nervous, particularly in the region. Um, as far as China goes, um, right now the relationship with China and Iran is mostly oil. Um, the reason why Iran is so crucial, not merely because of its, um, you know, alleged nuclear weapons program, but simply because of the strait where so much oil passes and it goes to the rest of the world. And China is a part of that. So in terms of, you know, Iran and China and China being, you know, a big player in nuclear weapons, I don't think that's really going to be on the horizon next. I think the next step in this process is making sure that Iran 
come to a deal with the United States so that both parties leave feeling satisfied because right now um, Iran does feel kind of boxed in by the United States. You know, they feel that they should have maybe capability to defend themselves, um, but obviously the United States is more skeptical and they tend to feel that, you know, should Iran develop a bomb, they would use it to go after Israel. Um, and that's, you know, given what, you know, Iran has said, Iran's leadership has said about Israel, um, denying the Holocaust and, you know, just aggressive towards Israel, it's not either of a possibility. So, yes. Marjorie, I'm going to have to stop you here. We're going to be back with our next segment. We're going into a commercial break. Our next segment, we're going to be discussing Benjamin Netanyahu's address to Congress, as well as Hillary Clinton's emails in 2016. Please stay with us. Let's do to the Black Talk Radio Network for live programming schedules. Visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Welcome back. I'm Dashaun Farad. You're listening to Let's Build. We're speaking with Democratic strategist Roy Paul and Republican strategist Marjorie Sanabria. And we want to last Right before we went into our commercial break, we were discussing the controversy with Iran. I want to ask you a question, Marjorie, uh, before we get into another topic. Do you feel that Speaker Boehner, Speaker John Boehner, violated protocol when he invited Prime Minister, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to address Congress? Um, forgive me for going long before the commercial break. Um, I'm sorry about that. And I, I do, I don't know what the protocol is. I'm not sure if the Speaker of the House is, is if that's in his job description or if the Constitution allows him to condemn prime ministers. Again, I, I think the GOP is really fond of political scoring. Um, they're fond of showmanship. They're fond of making points, um, whether, whether the Constitution allows them to do it or not. Um, I think they act outside of the processes and procedures we have in place, and that either makes it illegal or just completely pointless. So I really hope that the Republican leadership understands that, you know, Republicans like myself want to see more than point scoring to, like, earn leadership and trust. Um, and oh, I hope that they I hope that they stop. I hope that they wind it down. Roy Paul, what's your take on it? Briefly, what's your take on it? Did John Boehner violate protocol? What's your take on it? Well, I, I, I agree again with Marjorie. Um, and it gives me great chance to say that, but um, I, I think the issue is, is a little bigger than, than protocol. It's certainly not illegal. And, and look, I, I'm, I'm a rebel just like anyone else, and I think protocol <laughs> is, is... Right. People weren't saying, was it, people weren't accusing it of being illegal. They just felt that he violated protocol, like an unwritten law that says well, that my, only my a head of... Was, well, that, that, that was my point. My point was, okay. if it's not illegal, then it doesn't matter what the alternative is. Uh, you know, I, I don't. I don't think it's it's an argument to have about whether or not it's for or against protocol. I, I think if they have the latitude, and look, both parties at some point have exercised their latitude. You know, the Democrats, just like Republicans at different points in our history, have done things that weren't necessarily by the book or that was by the norm of the Senate or the House, and they did it anyway. Uh, so I, I'm not a, a fan of saying, you know, it was against protocol, therefore, you know, damn the Republicans. I don't, I don't really care. When someone commits a crime, then I care. Uh, and so, you know, sure, there are people who don't like what John Boehner and the Republicans did. Well, that's just too bad. But I bet you, and you saw, that there was Democrats sitting in the audience when not, now he spoke. That's not because they thought that they were attending an illegal uh, forum. They attended because whether they agreed with John Boehner and the Republicans doing what they did or not, they still believed that it was in their best interest to attend. Okay, well, this is what I want to address next as we get as we uh, get ready to conclude. Of course, we have quite a few minutes. We have quite a few more minutes left. Let's discuss. I want to ask both of you your take on Hillary Clinton's emails. Oh, do you feel that? Do you feel that? The, first of all, last week Hillary Clinton had a press conference addressing uh, the email controversy. Uh, many people, specifically many Republicans, are not, they were not at all satisfied with her answer. Do either of you feel that Hillary's emails, uh, that this controversy will 
destroy or even damage her in 2016 should she decide to run, et cetera, et cetera? Is that a question? No. Uh, it's not going to destroy her chances of her running. It's not going to be the designing factor with whether or not people vote for her. Her issue, by and large, and everyone knows and, and studies have shown this, is that people are deathly afraid of another Bush or another Clinton. She has to deal with the fact that not only is her last name Clinton, but she's a woman. And there are still people, uh, especially men in the Democratic Party, the old guard, who do not want to see a woman in power. That's her issue. This email crap is just that. It's garbage. And at some point, it's going to be used as fertilizer because no one is going to pay any attention to it. Someone will bring it up to score points with a small section of people, but the large majority of people don't think it's a big issue. Well, an article that I read in the NPR had stated that right now, uh, it was I forgot who the author was, but the other day the article stated that right now the Democrats have no one else but Hillary. So they're saying that uh, it won't damage her in the time. Now, why do you say that's this not, not true? Now, Roy, listen up. This is what they're saying. The article was saying that primary-wise, it wouldn't hurt her. However, in the general election, that it would hurt her. But just saying that Hillary is not, you're saying that there's a possible, there are other contenders in the Democratic Party that you all may have? You said that the Democrats don't have any other choice but Hillary Clinton, and that's not that's true. What, there that's are, what the article there, was saying. I wasn't saying I that. That's what the article, article said. said. I, I don't care what the article said. That is just, that, that's just someone's opinion. There are plenty of Democrats who could run and be contenders to Hillary Clinton. Now, whether or not they will be forced out, whether or not these are people who will be persuaded not to run, that's what the party does. The party blocks out candidates who would be qualified to run and to serve. That's the only per that's really, I think, one of the major functions that the party serves. There are plenty of people. I can give you a handful of people right now would be excellent candidates for presidency of the United States of America. Whether or not they get on the ballot is a different story. So it's not Marjorie, an act of desperate, uh, being desperate that we're choosing Hillary Clinton. That's not what it's about. Marjorie, do you think that this is few, that these emails are few, say, for uh, conservatives or Republicans to uh, use against her in 2016? I mean, they're going to try to find whatever they can to disqualify her. I, I remember reading somewhere, I don't recall if it was in an article or on Twitter, where they said Hillary Clinton is just as scandal-prone as her husband, but has none of the charm. Um, and I think that's a pretty apt summary of um, Hillary's political um, capital. I, I think that she will run, she's going to run, this email scandal will blow over, this Republicans are just trying to, you know, kick up dirt, because that's what they do, um, and trying to distract from the fact that they really don't have a viable candidate to run in the primary, and that they need to get on that. So this will blow over in a couple of weeks, and we'll have forgotten about it. Well, regarding the 2016 election, I want to know, what do you think are some of the major issues going to be between the Democratic candidate and the Republican candidate? What do you think that uh, Americans or voters are going to be concerned about the most in 2016? Um, I think one of the things that they're most concerned about is, are we going to have more of the same? Um, you know, Jeb Bush is already looking like a pretty clear front runner. Um, he's been untainted by party politics, and he has the Bush name. And Hillary Clinton, you know, is not so much a name anymore, so much she's an institution. And we've had Bush and Clinton before. And I think Americans are tired of the Bush and Clinton dynasties. And I don't even, I don't think it comes down to specific issues because the issues are already going to be there. You know, education, immigration, you know, Medicaid and Medicare, those issues aren't going away. But I think that American people really want more innovative strategies on how to address these problems and just the dynasties, the, the, the political dynastic families coming in to do more of the same, I think, is what Americans fear the most. Roy, what's your take on it? 2016, what's your take on it? What are voters most concerned about in your eyes? I, I think that the voters will decide who they want and who they will vote for based on what they believe personally, what their personal biases are. When you look at the television screen, whether it's a debate or a speech, do you really see yourself pulling the lever for a woman? 
do you really see yourself pulling the lever for Bush? Those are going to be the issues. The political issues, it will matter how the candidates respond to those issues, but I don't think anyone's going to really vote for Hillary Clinton because she's the leading proponent on education reform. They may use that as a reason why they say they will vote for her, but no one issue is going to make a difference for a country. People say, well, the economy. Well, that's not true either. Because we already know that people voted for people who believe who they thought was best suited for the economy, only for those people to get elected and to do a horrible job. So people have separated the issues from the person, and they say, "Do I like you? Do I want to go out and have a drink with you? Do I really believe myself seeing you as a leader?" And if you don't fit the criteria, the issues are pointless. So tell me, uh, Roy, do you think that when you were mentioning that there were possible contenders to Hillary's campaign, or possible campaign, rather, do you think that Elizabeth Warren would be a good Democratic nominee? I think, Democratic she, would, I, I, I think she would be a good Democratic candidate. I don't. She's already said she doesn't want to do it. We have reason to believe that she's not going to do it. Um, and so, yes, the answer is yes. She would be a good contender, absolutely. Would she do it? It doesn't look like she is. So, who do you think would besides Hillary? Do you think Biden, or do you think do you think it's going to be some unknown candidate like a you remember, like a Bill Clinton candidate, as I call it, someone that comes out of nowhere and then boom, they're on the national stage. Bill well, actually, like I feel like or like Senator Barack Obama, rather. But go ahead. What do you think? Yeah. Do you think it's going to be? A- you know, I don't know who will eventually get into the race, but I am really drawn to people like Deval Patrick. I really like him. Um, I, I think that he, he has he has a compassionate heart. Uh, I believe that he is genuine. Um, and I like electing people who I don't think need to be there. I like electing people who I think would do a good job just because they believe in the good uh, of of the party and of the of the of the working poor. And I think Duval Patrick would be an excellent candidate, and I think he has the ability to raise the money and to galvanize the grassroots support using Obama's template. Um, but I don't, I don't know what he wants to do, to be honest with you. Um, but I, I think he would be an excellent candidate. So tell me, what do you think, uh, the both of you, what do you think President Barack Obama's legacy would be when he leaves office? I want to ask you that, Marjorie. Then we're going to get to Roy in the, in the last remaining minutes that we have. Go ahead, Marjorie. Um, I think that Obama, I, I think he has a decent legacy. Um, I voted for him twice, um, and I'm actually pretty happy with the legacy he has. I mean, I switched political affiliations for different reasons. Um, I think he'll be remembered for ending the war in Iraq. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. What did you say? Wow, we actually have a Republican. Uh, you know, listen, I speak to many Republicans, and even the black ones are hard on him, with the exception of, say, Michael Steele. We actually have a black Republican praising uh, no, 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 no. The the Republicans that, that you're talking about are the ones who get on the airwaves. That's not indicative uh, of what black people who are Republicans think or why. These are the extremists who, who pander to the producers who book them and yada, yada, yada. So there are a lot of black Republicans who love the work that Obama has been doing. Okay, well, listen up, Roy. Sorry. Go ahead, go ahead, Mark. Actually, Mark, I'm very sorry since we're like we're concluding. I didn't mean to interrupt, interject like that, oh, no. but I'm gonna have to. No I'm gonna have. I'm gonna have to give this to Roy. Roy, what do you think your president's legacy is gonna be? You being a fellow Democrat. Yeah, I, I think the the war in Iraq is a good uh, a, a good point, but I, I think ultimately he will be known as someone who did what many people thought was impossible, and I don't think people are gonna forget about the fact. Uh, that he defied the odds coming from where he came from to rise and become the first African-American president. So, so tell me, do either one of you agree, or I should say, uh, Roy, do you agree with how the president has handled immigration? No. Now, why don't you agree? Well, I, I, I don't blame him for it because he needs to work in tandem with the Congress that doesn't have the support that he needs to get immigration reform passed. Uh, I don't blame him for that, but I'm certainly not happy with with the fact that it can't get done. What about you, Marjorie? Concerning well, to answer your, your earlier question, I think that Obamacare will be part of his legacy for better or for worse. And I think immigration is going to be the rollover issue. It's an issue that didn't really get resolved under Obama's presidency and needs to be resolved desperately. We can't keep 
um, going with the policies that we've been going with. We need to focus on, you know, reform, like allowing, like fast-tracking people to citizenship. I mean, this country was built by immigrants. Um, it's part of our character and our fabric and who we are. So I hope that this will, this immigration issue will be more of a spotlight in 2016 and that there will be more concrete measures taken towards reform. Well, that's our show for this evening. We thank you for joining us. We hope you want to join us. Thank you, our guest. We hope you join us next week. I'm Dashaun Parad. Thank you for listening to Let's Build. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.